Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, I spoke with Christina Lamb, who is Chief Foreign Correspondent of the Sunday Times. Christina spoke about her early experience as a freelancer covering conflict in Afghanistan. She talked about co-writing Malala's biography and how she balances her time as a journalist and an author. It's a great episode and we really hope you enjoy it. So I'm here with Christina Lamb at the Jaipur in London uh, Literary Festival. Christina, great to have you here and thanks so much for finding time at the end of a, end of a long day. It's a um, pleasure. I was wondering if we could kind of dive, dive right in. Thanks again for sending over those stories. Um, and if you could talk about this wedding in Pakistan. So the, the, the wedding that kind of threw you into journalism, what was your entry? It was a Bhutto wedding, was it? Yeah, my whole career as a foreign correspondent basically started as a result of a wedding invitation. Um, I'd always wanted to write. Um, I loved writing. Uh, I hadn't necessarily thought about being a journalist. I really wanted to write novels. And at university, I got involved in journalism and edited the university newspaper. But uh, when I left university, my plan was to... Um, spend a year or so doing different things and trying to make some money so that I could then go and rent a garret somewhere and write my great novel. But I thought I needed to have exciting adventures happen to me to write about. Um, And I I worked as an intern for the Financial Times when I first left university. And I was on the foreign desk. And one day, um, the foreign editor was supposed to go for a, a lunch of um, South Asian politicians and last minute couldn't go. And he said to me, you're always going on about India because <laughs> I traveled there as a student. Um, so why don't you go to this lunch? So I went and sat next to somebody who was the secretary general for the Pakistan People's Party, which was Benazir Bhutto's party opposition. And at that time, Pakistan was under military dictatorship. So this man asked me if I'd like to interview Benazir. And she was living in exile in London. Of course, I said yes. So I ended up going to interview her. And the day that I interviewed her was the day that she announced her engagement to Asif Ali Zadari. So her flat was just full of bouquets of flowers. This was 87, actually. And um, I then got a job as a trainee at Central News um, in Birmingham. Which was, is that TV? TV, yeah, yeah, which was a kind of accident, really, because I didn't really want to go into TV. But I met somebody who told me that they were looking for trainees. And then um, I went for an interview. And it seemed like fun. um, But... It was a very male newsroom, to be honest, and um, I was the most junior person, and I spent an awful lot of time doing what I think is the worst job in journalism, which is we had a lot of um, motorways in our area because we covered all Midlands and um, and some of Northern England, and there were a lot of motorway crashes, so and so place. I would be the one as the young girl be sent to the families of um, who lost their sons or daughters or husbands and um, to go and ask for a photograph that we could use with the um, story and which I think is a really difficult thing to do so one day anyway I was there uh, working there and I came home from work and there was this most beautiful gold inscribed wedding invitation on my doormat and that was to Benazir's 
wedding okay. in Pakistan, which was around Christmas 1987. So, of course, I said yes. <laughs> I had never been to Pakistan. And it was the most amazing introduction. It was so colourful, but also so political, mm -hmm. because every day of the wedding, and the wedding went on for like a week or more, like all South Asian weddings, but being Benazir, even more spectacular. Yeah. And then every night after all the ceremonial events, there'd be these discussions with her um, political colleagues about how to try and topple General Zia, the military okay. dictator. And I'd never heard anything like that. I mean, I'd kind of taken democracy for granted, I right. suppose. And suddenly I was meeting these people who had been tear gassed or tortured or arrested, not that much younger older than me some of them um all trying to bring democracy back to their country so i was fascinated and couldn't quite imagine going back to cover local news in birmingham so i came back and gave it my notice and okay. went to live in pakistan if you hadn't done that if you'd stayed in the uk well, how do you think your career would have unfolded I think I would have always gone somewhere because it was very restless. And actually, I'd had this idea before I got this um, traineeship at Central that I was going to go and work for the Bangkok Post. Okay. I'm not quite sure how the Bangkok Post, I think I wrote, because this is before internet and yeah. everything, I wrote them a letter saying <laughs> like I was coming. <laughs> I don't think I ever had a reply. Right. And then how how did you go about setting yourself up as a as a young freelancer in Peshawar? Well, to be honest, I didn't know anything about how journalists worked. Um, I mean, I had worked on the foreign desk at the FT for that summer, so I, I had seen from that end and I'd met some of the foreign correspondents. And I suppose, you know, I really, to me, they were such romantic figures. They were almost entirely male, I have to say. They came wafted back from wherever they were based you know Beirut or Damascus or all these places that seemed very romantic to me and they all came in with they all seemed to carry sort of big leather satchels full of lots of newspapers in different languages and okay. they just looked much more exotic and interesting than anyone else so I wanted to be like now, that. Now that you've you know you've, you've done the trade yourself a, how real do you think the romanticism was? And do you think there was an element of affectation to the leather satchels and things like that? They probably liked the fact that there was this sort of 21-year-old girl who was kind of fascinated by and what they were doing. And yeah. um, Because to be honest, they were really all quite jaded characters, I would say. But, um, but they just knew all about different things in the world and had been yeah. to all these places and were kind of, you know, covering these great stories. And I was completely intrigued by it and wants to be like that so um, but I didn't I suppose I had failed to really ask them any of the specific questions of that would have been more useful of what you should do when you get to a place or um, and so actually I kind of got on the plane this sounds really silly look, looking back but got on the plane to Pakistan to Ralpindi with actually not a clue uh, what I would do when I got there but I had gone I'd got to know the press attache at the Pakistan High Commission who was a really lovely man 
And I think he was a little bit baffled at the idea of this 21-year-old blonde girl going off to live in Pakistan on her own, who didn't really seem to know very much. And he wrote me in the most beautiful black copper plate writing letters to people um, to give when I got there, to like introductions. Um, and it almost felt like something out of Kipling, you know, turning up with these letters into Peshawar and the Northwest Frontier. And actually, the very first letter that I went to talk to somebody was from the Arbab family and that was a fantastic introduction because at that point the Arbabs controlled most of the the city like the mayor the refugee commissioner at that time um, there were three and a half million Afghan refugees in Pakistan um, I mean it was a typical Pakistan well-off family where you had somebody in government position somebody in the army a, a banker you know it, it kind of covered all bases uh, a civil servant and and so they were really helpful and incredibly kind to me so how do you get from there from being fresh off the plane to being embedded with the mujahideen what six months later what's the, the no no much quicker than that i mean the thing to do the whole point of being in Peshawar was to cover the war yeah. in afghanistan and actually i mean just i hadn't gone out there my plan when i came back from pakistan and said i'm going to go and live there was to cover pakistan i thought benazir gone back and she was going to topple the military dictator and i was going to cover this kind of revolution yeah. um when i went to talk to foreign editors they all looked at me as though i was mad and very naive which i suppose i was and they weren't interested in pakistan they all said general z has been there 11 and a half years nothing's going to change but they were interested in Afghanistan because at that time the Russians been were there. Like eight, eight years, They'd years. been there since 79, yeah. so it was 80, end of 87, early 88. So uh, they told me, you know, if you want to cover Afghanistan, we're interested. And um, Afghanistan was a war that was mostly covered by freelancers because um, it's odd looking back on that now, given all the other things that have happened. But mostly people didn't send their staff correspondence into Afghanistan so there was sort of group of us because it was considered very dangerous actually yeah. a group of us living in Peshawar who used to go in and out and so that was the whole point of being there really was to go in and out with the Mujahideen going inside we called it right. and you spent all your time in Peshawar basically trying to go inside with a group, find a group that were going somewhere interesting. And then when you were inside, it was really miserable. There was nothing to eat. You were dodging, kind of being bombed. There were landmines. Um, often there was long periods, and this is one of the things about war, long periods with nothing going on, actually. And, you know, often the Mujahideen wouldn't get up for hours, and so you would kind of be hanging around. Um and so you'd often, once you got inside, then you were wishing that you were back out again. But I I guess when I got there, like I said, I didn't know what foreign correspondents did or what they needed. And there were seven different Mujahideen groups that had been uh, created um, really by Pakistan's intelligence, ISI, which was controlling the whole war. Yeah. And they followed the whole British divide and rule um, system. And so if, if there was lots of groups, that they could play them off against each other. And they were, why they had power was lots of money and arms came mostly from CIA, also from the Saudis, also from the British and French. 
Um, but because it was a covert war against the Russians, and this was really the, the last uh, proxy war of the Cold War, yeah. uh, the Pakistani military ran the whole thing. And so they had a lot of power. And of course, what became clear later was that they were <laughs> using this to um, empower the people that most followed what they wanted, which tended to be the the really hardline jihadist yeah. uh, Islamist groups. Did the Russians still have ground troops? On the ground yes, they time? did. They yeah. did. But it, I went there at the time when the tide was starting to turn. And it was starting to turn because the the huge advantage that the Russians had over the Mujahideen was air power. Obviously, the Mujahideen didn't have anything. And uh, then, uh, just before I got there, was when the Mujahideen had been given Stinger missiles and blowpipes, which meant that they could shoot down helicopters. And that made a huge difference. That really turned the tide of the war. And could you talk about this this story that you sent, which is was for the FT? Was mm-hmm. it? So how did that? Both how did it come about, and then how, you know how did you file and things like that? At, at that <laughs> yeah, time? well, that was a huge difficulty at that time. So we'll I put this in the show notes so that the people can. can see so it. I, uh, um, at, what happened was I used to go in and out of Afghanistan, and I was um, freelancing for various people. So I regularly for the FT. But, you know, the FT is a mostly business newspaper. There was a limit to their appetite of stories from inside the war in Afghanistan. And also, I used to work for all sorts of people. Time magazine, um, Daily Express. I was their our girl in Kabul. Um, so, you know, different groups of people even did some TV too. And I went into Kandahar, which was actually... A, hard place to go to mostly we tended to go to places that were quite easy like Jalalabad or Khost or places that didn't take so long to get to from Peshawar but Kandahar was a much longer trip and I had really wanted to go there because it seemed to me very interesting that the Mujahideen in Kandahar were different they were more independent less under the control of the Pakistani intelligence and I had met somebody called Hamid Karzai, who at that time, as I said, I because I didn't really know what foreign correspondents did, I went to see all seven of the different Mujahideen groups. And most people didn't bother doing that. They just went to the, the most um, important, most effective. And I went to the smallest group, which was run by somebody called Professor Mujahidi. And the spokesperson for that was one Hamid Karzai, okay. who at that time was completely unheard of outside of, of Afghanistan. Because he spent time in the West later. Later. Yeah. And so we got on very well. Um, he, I think, um, well, I learned a lot about what I know about Afghanistan from him because he, right from the moment I met him, he said to me, if you want to understand Afghanistan, you need to understand the tribes of southern Afghanistan. Okay. So he invited me to his house for dinner and it was full of all these um, bearded Afghan elders from Nimbras and Helmand and um, Kandahar and Zabul and they all told the most amazing stories 
mostly which seems to involve killing people right. and i just i'd never heard such stories that afghans are amazing storytellers and they love having a captive audience which they had from me did you speak um, any local languages no not that and later i learned some pashto because i needed to traveling yeah. um i couldn't afford an interpreter but um at the beginning i didn't speak anything and so Anyway, Hamid Kaz and I became good friends. I would say, actually, he became my closest friend in okay. Peshawar. And he had not gone into Afghanistan at all. He'd been a spokesperson, so on the sort of political side. But he really wanted to go and actually experience what it was like being in the jihad in Afghanistan. So he was going to go to Kandahar on a trip. So he took me with him on that trip. So we went for three weeks. And we went with a group called the Muller's Front, which actually was a very independent group. And as the name suggests, was a kind of religious-based group. Um, they'd never had a journalist with them before, certainly never a woman. And we drove round for three weeks round Kandahar on the backs of their motorbikes. Did you wear a headscarf? Did you cover up? I actually wore a turban because we were supposed to be, I mean, look like Kandahari um, tribal people. And actually, I can tell you that it's a lot more risky sometimes being as a dressed as a Kandahari boy than it would be as a woman because Kandahari tastes tend to be more in that direction sometimes. Um, So I travelled around with them and we kept being bombed everywhere we went and uh, Hamid Karzai, each place we got to, because he was excited to be there, would radio immediately, like everybody around, to say, to say, you know, I'm here and let's meet. So all these people would come, and then we would get bombed. After this happened, like sort of five days running in different places, I said to him, "Do you think it's really such a good idea to keep radioing like where?" Um, because he was on the top of the Soviet hit list. He right. was uh, one of the people they wanted to get. His father had been an important politician, and. Um, so we had a very interesting time and we were with this group that then decided they were going to attack Kandahar city and try and capture some posts at that time it's still under Russian control and so we went on this mission which it just seemed crazy to me so first we went and we attacked a a post uh, and started firing all sorts of things at it. And of course, in the middle of the night, and they immediately fired loads of things at us, and they had much more than we did. So we then had to run like hell to get out. So that didn't really work very well. Then they decided they were going to attack the airport, which had was... Had you been under. in that kind of situation before? Well, I had been um, in, in Afghanistan by then. When that trip happened, I suppose I'd already been there maybe six months or so. So I had been on some other um, missions with different Mujahideen group, but this was the hardest and the longest period, really. Um, And also, as I said, sometimes you'd go and you wouldn't see anything. So we were always a bit suspicious because... Was it just you? Yeah, it was just me. No, I never travelled with any other journalists um, because usually these groups anyway would only take one journalist with them. Um, 
but we were always very suspicious, those of us based in Peshawar, that sometimes when people came out from London or from America, with sort of big names, would come and they'd go on one trip into Afghanistan for a few days and then come out and write some huge story about this massive battle. And do you think they're <laughs> Well, I have or no do idea. Think, or do you think stuff but put on what we knew was that usually when you travelled with the Mujahideen, you often spent a lot of time and nothing happened because this is a guerrilla war, right? You didn't know. Sure. I honestly believe that one of the reasons the Russians found it so difficult to defeat the Afghans and ultimately didn't was because they it, it was so disorganized. You know, they had no idea. They couldn't predict what the Afghan Mujahideen were going to yeah. do because Mujahideen didn't know what they were going to do. But also, of course, as uh, our troops then discovered later on, you know, it's a huge disadvantage to not know the terrain. And yeah. they uh, obviously, and the terrain, yeah, the Mujahideen, you know, was their country. So, they so how, how did you then file? So, um, well, so this particular attack, then we attacked the airport and that was kind of mad because how could you, we were a small group of Mujahideen firing on the Russians at the airport. So immediately they sent tanks back down and started firing at us and all of the fighters that were um, in a sort of building for dry, drying grapes just behind us. That was blown up, so they were all killed. The rest of us were in a kind of trench down below, a big ditch. And so we survived, but then these tanks were there, so we couldn't get out of the tanks, out of the trenches, because if we had moved, we would have been shot. And they just didn't move, so we were then stuck for ages. So we were two days in these ditches, and I... Um, and there's nothing to eat and it, the ditches were muddy so there was actually some crabs in them and so the Mujahideen ate these mud crabs <laughs> I didn't eat those but I did drink the muddy water um, and it was the whole thing was just mad eventually the tanks left and we were able to get out but I couldn't file anything because this was before the days of satellite phones and mobile phones and actually there was no phone service in Afghanistan then so everything was through Pakistan so I had to then wait until I came back to Pakistan and even in Pakistan there was no direct dialing internationally so I had to then call the international operator and uh, often that involved um, bribing the international operator and then get a, a call through and then dictate copy or the other way was through telex with uh, ticker tape and putting that through but you know it was really uh, so it was often weeks after something had happened before i actually was filing the story um and so with that one how long was the the lag before uh, before it ran I can't remember exactly. It would certainly would have been, I mean, it certainly would have taken us quite a long while to have got out of Kandahar, back to Quetta. And I actually had mortar burns from the um, attack. So I, I had to go to the hospital and have um, this sort of mercury ointment, which I'm sure is completely banned now. And so... I guess I f must have filed from Quetta, but it was a long while afterwards. I mean, it, it's interesting for me. I just looked at that piece today before we talked, and I haven't read it for a long while. And this is a piece from 1988. 
Um, and it was part of a group of pieces which for which I won Young Journalist of the Year. And it's so interesting because the piece is almost entirely third person. It's, it's not, it's yeah, and it, 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 you know, it's quite factual. Okay, bear in mind it was for the Financial Times. Mm. But these days, I think someone in that position would be writing very much about, you know, me, 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 what happened right. and my feeling. There's none of that really in that yeah. piece. And actually here I was, a sort of 21-year-old girl in a, a ditch with the Russian tanks facing on me, yeah. um, which I still, you know, remember quite vividly. And and yet I that's written in quite a dispassionate way, which in some ways I think you know I think these days I feel that there's too much of people putting themselves yeah. in this story. We always ask uh, everyone on the podcast about the, the financial side of their writing lives. And so when you were a, you know a young freelancer on the hustle in Peshawar, were you making it work financially? <laughs> At the beginning, it was very difficult. I mean, I always say to young people that are looking for a place to go find somewhere cheap yeah. <laughs> and somewhere nice to live. Um, and Peshawar was very cheap to live. So, that, and in those days, it was, uh, I thought it was a wonderful place to live. It's very different now. Um, but it was a struggle because, I mean, first of all, just the whole communications thing, it cost me a lot of money to make a phone call and so to go through international dialing to make this call relatively phone calls were so much more expensive than they are now and then often I would get through it would take me so long to get through and then I'd get through to the foreign editor and be told oh he's at lunch and then that was quite soul destroying because then um, you know, you kind of had gone to all that effort. And I mean, actually, my first big story when I was there was when General Zia was killed in an air crash. And when that happened, it was evening. And I remember I was at a friend's house and it was the old Bakelite phones with the rotary really dials. Times, yeah. And I was dialing the international operator's number, which I think was 123, over and over again. Uh, not getting through and finally I got through and was begging her to get this number in London to the foreign desk it took so long I think it took an hour to get the number and I was almost in tears by the end because I was thinking I'm like one of the only foreign correspondents here this is a huge story the whole General Zia was killed, the American ambassador, all the um, top-ranking generals practically were in this plane, had all been killed, and I can't get a phone call through. Yeah. Um, were you then taken on to staff after that? What was your, your kind of personal progression after those? So to start with, I was just freelancing, and as I was there for a while and um, started sort of picking up more strings and actually to be honest in the end more work than I could do so so it, it did end up well but in the end I was deported from Pakistan because I wrote a story about the military intelligence so I wrote two things one about them selling the weapons to the Iranians that were meant for the Afghan Mujahideen and another about them plotting a coup against Benazir who by then had become prime minister and so I was deported and that was infuriating because by then, you know, I was well established there. I'd set everything up. I was living in Islamabad at my flat. I had lots of friends. I had lots of contacts and was writing lots of things. And and suddenly I was arrested and, and deported. So that was, you know, really heart wrenching. And to be honest, at the beginning, 
I thought they were they would let me back, um, and so did the Financial Times. So, but I did the worst possible thing. I had a boyfriend then who was an American journalist living in India, and I went stay with him. Okay. Pakistan, India hate each other, so all the Pakistani media ran stories saying that this proved that I was an Indian agent. That I'd gone straight to my handlers in India, and in fact, I'd gone to Goa for a week at the beach to try and recover. Um, so then I think after. That I just I wasn't going to be allowed back. So then I moved to London, and then the FT. On staff um, by this time. No, I was still freelancing. I uh, was on a retainer, so I uh, was I guess what they called a super stringer. Super stringer. And yeah. then I, for a while, worked in the Westminster office in London, which was very funny because in Pakistan. How did that feel after Well, it was it was fascinating, but I. Um, was so used to in Pakistan just talking to anybody. I mean, you'd just turn up at ministers' houses and if you wanted to um, get a quote. So when I went to work in Westminster, I just thought that that was how it worked here because I never... And so I was trying to just like turn up at ministers' <laughs> offices and places and the political editor, I think, was somewhat horrified because I was like the <laughs> most junior person. I wasn't supposed to be doing any of this. Um so I did that for a bit, and but I really wanted to go back abroad. I'd really got the bug, and at that time, it was just after the Berlin Wall had fallen. I was desperate to go to Eastern Europe, and the foreign editor called me in, and um, I had won the Young Journalist of the Year when I was in Pakistan, and um, I'd then also been part of a team of the FT that won the News Reporter of the Year for an investigation on BCCI. And uh, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, which was a very scandalous bank. Um, And I so was getting job offers from other people. But I was actually I loved the FT. It was a great place to start off. It was a great place to work. And they were really good to me. I mean, when I look back. They trusted me, you know, they didn't know much about me. I, in Pakistan, was writing quite different things to what was this accepted wisdom, and and they printed it. And, you know, they always used to discuss with me the things, and I, they had a really, an Asia editor, Robin Pauly, who I really used to um, talk to a lot, and Yurik Martin, the foreign editor, was a really um, amazing encouragement. And so... I it was a really good place to to start out so I didn't really have any desire to go anywhere else and it also seemed to me that FT had more foreign correspondence than any other British paper and they so, sent you to South America well what happened next as I said I was really keen to go to Eastern Europe because this was the the time that the what Berlin Wall had just fallen all these different communist regimes were coming to an end yeah. And I really wanted to be there. So the foreign editor took me into his office and he said, question I'll never forget, where do you most want to go to in the world? And he had this map with all these colored pins for his different correspondence, different colors for staff, for super stringers, for freelance. And I said, well, I want to go to Eastern Europe. So at that point the woman who had been the eastern europe correspondent for years for 12 years was due to be leaving and which was quite bizarre really because it hadn't been a story for most of that time and suddenly it was a huge story so it, i suppose it was quite unlikely but she had arranged that she was going to be moving 
So he said I could go to Budapest and be based there and cover. So I thought that was amazing. I went straight to Hatchards and bought these books about Hungary and, and Czechoslovakia. And so I was reading all of these things. And then, um, of course, the Eastern Europe correspondent then decided she'd she would stay. Right. So then the editor actually called me in and he said, I want to send you to... Um, South America and send you to Brazil okay. and I had never been to <laughs> South America in my life um, I didn't speak any of the languages either Spanish or Portuguese I but you know I, so I said that but he said no you know it's fine and they then sent me to Venezuela with the Latin American editor to go and see um, how it went and I thought that was great um, so then I um, learned, to, uh, did a really short course in Spanish and Portuguese and then flew off to Rio. And how long were you there for? I was in Rio for almost four years and it was wonderful. I read the, we, we don't have time to talk about length, but I read the carnival piece that you sent, which was, was fun from that. I was wondering if we could shoot forward um, a little bit more to talk about the, the second boot or the Buto piece that you sent. So about being on the bus. Because how long before she was killed was that, that that piece was? So that was, um, Benazir went back to Pakistan in October um, 2007 and she was killed on Boxing Day 2007. So I think it was about 10 weeks okay. before. Because I, I interviewed her when I was at university. Um, it was like one of the first interviews I ever did, I think in 2006, something like that, uh, back at Oxford. Um, so, uh, we, well, again, we'll put it in the show notes, but you were on her bus when it was when it was yes. blown up. Could we talk about that, but also about, you know, your experience of, of kind of covering these very traumatic events? You know, how, what has that experience been like for you professionally and personally, and how have you gone about kind of assimilating that in your work and also you know, more, more generally as a, as a human being? Yeah, it's interesting because it's not something people used to talk about. So when I was going into Afghanistan in and out and, you know, lots of, you saw, you know, it was the first time I'd ever seen people being killed in front of me. And actually in huge numbers in the battle for Jalalabad, 10,000 people were killed in a week. I was one of the only journalists there. Um, and also because I was a woman, people were always coming up and asking me, thinking I was a nurse and asking me to like save people's lives and I felt useless. So, but, you know, there's no discussion then about PTSD or the, the effect on you. And actually I realized looking back, I remember once coming back from, and actually from Jalalabad and it was really shocking and calling the then foreign editor of the Daily Express to file something. And, and I started laughing, which was completely inappropriate from what I just, and I suppose that was a reaction to the, the trauma that I had seen. But um, with Benazir's bus, I knew Benazir, as I said, very well. She had this enormous um, influence on my career. And so when she went back to Pakistan, she asked me to go with her and be on the bus. And first I said, great. But then actually I knew that she'd had lots of assassination threats and I had just had a number of things happen to me that year. I'd been in a suicide bombing in a hotel. I'd been um, ambushed in Helmand by Taliban. And so I'd had these various narrow escapes. It was a really weird 
year. I mean, even I went on holiday with my husband and son and we went parasailing and the thing broke, the string broke. So we went crashing down into the sea and my husband was really horrified. Um, And actually, and I... I didn't even realize it wasn't supposed to happen. I just okay. was said, oh, that seemed a bit dramatic. And he was like, are you mad? That was like, yeah. we could have died. So probably that suggested that I wasn't really reacting quite normally to things. Anyway, I got to Karachi, all the excitement of her going back. And I had decided I wasn't going to go on her bus. I was going to go with the rest of the media on the bus behind because I knew it was very dangerous. Pakistan then was having more terrorist attacks than anywhere on earth. And she was number one target. So, but then when we got off the plane and we saw all the crowds of people in Karachi gathered around that bus and I just thought I have to be there. I have to be on that bus. So I went on top. A few journalists came briefly to do interviews, but uh, I was the only person, um, along with Victoria Schofield, who's an old school friend of Benazir, who stayed on the bus the whole way. And at the beginning, I thought this is so dangerous because there are just people everywhere. It's an open-top bus. There are people on roofs, on tops of lampposts and trees. And I said to the um, guy in charge of security, how are you going to protect her? And he said, well, it's in God's hands. And then she also stepped away from her bulletproof screen. Yeah, she did. Do you think in any way, was she being cavalier? Did she have a death wish or do you think? No, I think she was so excited to be back there. And she it's what she loved, being there with the people. And I mean, you saw her, her whole face and everything change. She was so excited to be back and the atmosphere was amazing and as I said I at the beginning thought this is really dangerous but then as we started driving and everybody was singing and releasing doves and there were people with children and you just forgot the danger and the excitement and actually you know I look back at that and think what the hell was I thinking staying on that bus it was crazy we knew that there was a high chance and also Benazir had said to me as we started the darkness fell because we were on that bus for nine hours um she said have you noticed the street lights are going off as we move forward Um, which is something in Karachi, notoriously, whenever there was an attack, would happen. Um, Also, all our phones were working, and yet there were supposed to be jammers to block any signals to set off um, suicide bombs, and clearly they weren't working because we could all call. So there were a lot of, you know, indications that things were not quite right. But you, you were there for so long, and you caught up in the story, and you forgot, and actually... You know, I feel that that's a time when editors maybe should be saying, actually, is there any point in you still being on there? But the other problem was that we'd arrived in Karachi. All our stuff had been taken off by her handlers. So actually, I didn't have anything with me. Um, And I, like... um, how I would get anywhere because it was just me and then there was all these crowds so how would I get to a hotel or we were just in the middle of all this um, highway did you find that you'd known her for 10 20, almost 20 years maybe by this stage and um, how do you go about writing about someone with whom you had this 
you know, long and, and quite intimate relationship? Where do you draw the boundaries yeah. between what you're doing? I think I found that harder at the beginning when I was first in Pakistan and we were friends and then she became she prime was minister. What, 15 years? How, what was the age gap between you? Uh, yeah, I guess she, I think she was 54 when she died. So yeah, probably 15 years. Yeah. And, um, and so at the beginning when I was in Pakistan, so she, yeah, maybe 13 or 14 years. I think she was mid-30s and I was 21, 22. She became prime minister and she would invite me to things at prime minister's house as a friend, which meant that I had tremendous access, but also I didn't really, I found it quite difficult to how, you know, how do you report on somebody who's actually running the country, but you're also, she's sort of inviting you around. Um, and I thought, well... The important thing was just doing my job, so I should write exactly what I saw. Um, and if something bad was happening, as in fact, you know, there was tremendous corruption in her first government, I said to her you know, about all these things. I was because I was mostly writing for the Financial Times, was meeting lots of business people, and they were telling me horrendous stories, particularly about her husband. So. I was asking her about that. I also felt strongly as a woman that she was the first m woman prime minister in, in the Islamic world and in Pakistan that she should be doing a lot of things for women that um, needed to be changed and she didn't do that. And so I did used to have quite heated discussions with her. Um, but she felt, so I still wrote all these things, whereas she felt you're either with us or you're against right. us. And so if I was a friend, I shouldn't be writing these things. So we did fall out. Um, okay. But later on, um, she was actually a very loyal person and, and she was in exile in London for years. And so I used to see her yeah. here. And so um, we repaired the relationship. I wanted to segue and it's kind of linked to the, to the Malala project. I read the piece that you wrote about that and you know if we could we talk a bit about your your parallel book writing career pre-Malala and then how the Malala kind of book came about yeah for yourself. well I had always wanted to write books um, and novels really and so right from the beginning um, in Afghanistan and Pakistan it was tremendous material it was a fascinating time to be there and I met um, a publisher actually in um, when I came back from Pakistan, and and so was offered a book deal. I couldn't believe it. It was like my dream mm. to write a book, and it was Penguin. I couldn't believe I was going to write a Penguin book, and it was really exciting. So I would have paid <laughs> for it for them, and and so I wrote my first book, Waiting for Allah, about. Um, Pakistan under uh, Benazir and under the dictatorship and and loved doing that um, and so really ever since then I've always done books as well as uh, writing for the paper well I'm lucky because actually some years ago when I was hired from the Sunday Telegraph to the Sunday Times and they offered me more money and I said I don't want more money I want more time right. so they said what do you mean and I said well at that point I had a young child I want to write books as well and I need more time so I only want to work half the year <laughs> so they were a bit 
um, astonished, but ended up um, doing a deal which I think has, I believe, worked very well for both sides of um, working seven months of the year for the newspaper. Um, Is it defined as like calendar months? I mean, how do, how, who determines which months? <laughs> no, well, uh, of course, for me doing books, it would be better if I just did seven months of the paper and had five months off yeah. for the book. But that isn't how it works. It's much more... You know, I'll go off on a trip for three weeks somewhere, then I'll be back for two weeks. So those two weeks count as my time off. Then I'll go somewhere for a month. You know, it, so it, it, it's um, so sometimes that's difficult because actually, um, although I love doing both writing for the paper and the and writing the books, it often takes me time to switch from one to the other. It's quite different. It's a different exit, different muscle. So usually when I sit down to do the first chapter of a new book after I've been doing lots of journalism, I'll write the chapter and then realize it's only like 2,000 words <laughs> and um, when I would thought I was going to be writing 10,000. And, and then equally, as I'm sure my editors get very frustrated at Sunday Times when I have go back to writing for the paper after I've been writing books I write way too much for the um, articles and then for the Malala thing you were you were approached because mm -hmm. what what I felt very interesting reading that piece was you were kind of very aware of the kind of circus that was that was around her and how did you feel kind of observing that but also maybe partly being part of it and, and things like because I mean, it, it struck me that she was this was all about her but in a sense it wasn't about her at all, right? It was like she was a kind of the vortex in the middle of this whole thing from Angelina Jolie to Bono to, you know, there was a whole like world well, around this young. Is, and, and but actually, Malala's very much her own person. And I, so I'd never done a book like that. I'd never done, you know, a ghostwriting or a book where I wrote in someone else's voice or yeah. with someone. I'd always written my own things. And then. I was approached to do that and of course I was intrigued to go and meet her so I went to meet her in Birmingham she'd just come out of hospital and they were living in this um, flat in central Birmingham and above these nightclubs and well it was in the center of the city so it was near her mum was a bit horrified because at night you'd see all these scantily clad <laughs> young right. women um, but I when I went to talk to her I had thought, I, you know, the idea of somebody who's got like PR people around them and all these other things was something I didn't want to be involved in. But honestly, the moment that I sat down and met her, she was so amazing. I had never met her at that point. She was 16. She was so passionate and eloquent and... Um, and also, you know, the th what she was fighting for was education for young women and boys, boys and girls, um, which was something I felt really strongly about. I mean, it seemed to me in all these different countries I'd reported from and lived, the one thing that makes most difference is being able to educate people. And so I could see that, you know, she was in such a powerful position to actually speak out about that. But also as a way, I mean, I guess, you know, as journalists in these places, you're always looking for stories and people to tell things through. And I had been kind of wanting to write something more about Pakistan and trying to find somebody through which I could bring it all together. And here was Malala, who had been born in 97 and then grown up through this period where her country went through enormous changes after 9-11 and um, you know it was the country probably changed more than anywhere else on earth by what happened 
And so to be able to write the story of somebody growing up through all of that, and particularly as a young woman and in one of the most conservative parts of the country, and how she had managed to um, overcome all of that, I just thought was um, amazing opportunity. Did you feel any tension between your kind of repertorial instincts and then you know you're, you're writing for her, right? And you know, in the piece you talk about discussing with the mother whether she can be in it, and, and you know, it, it's an authorized production. Did you feel yeah. any tension between you know that that ultimately you were sort of part of Team Malala, and in a sense that's different from you know a journalist relationship with their subject. No, because everything that was in the book was, you know, things that um, we wanted to tell. It wasn't as though we whitewashed something or that there were things that were hidden. You know, everything um, that I knew about, because before I met her, I knew all the context because of having been through Pakistan, lived in it and been involved in it for so long and made so many trips there. Then I went to her village, I went to her school. I, so I, it was kind of like a reporting job as well as, um, you know, doing all the interviews with her and her family. So it was just that the story was told through her and I wouldn't have done that book any differently if it had been my book about her rather than a, a joint book. So, uh, no. <laughs> I'd be interested as well on it again a kind of broader question about what do you feel the impact of your work has been so you know you've written about these events of enormous human important drama um do you think that your reporting has changed things do you know that's the hardest question to deal with often people talk to me about the trauma of covering things and you know i've had colleagues killed like my colleague marie colvin i've had um, been in lots of places where i've seen terrible things happen but honestly, the thing I find personally hardest to deal with is, does it make a difference? And when you write about things, you know, you, I pour my heart into my writing. I try desperately when I'm writing to make people back home think about these places so that they'll change things and, you know, be calling their politicians or be angry and try and um, get injustices righted. Um and so when you write about things and that doesn't happen, that's so difficult. And particularly some of the wars that we've been involved with, which never seem to end. So Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria. Um, and we seem to make the same mistakes over and over again. And you just feel like we reported these things. You know, nobody read what yeah. we know what went wrong. And yet the same things are happening. And that's incredibly difficult um and i was thinking with the yazidi piece for example you said which is really very powerful did that what kind of impact did that have yeah i have found myself <laughs> being more angry i suppose in more recent years and i think that that i don't know is it's getting, being older or well I, I don't think there's anything wrong with anger in i mean i i don't see how you could cover any of this if you didn't care right because it's not a Journalism is fun, right? A lot of the time we... But a lot of this is really difficult too. And um, I don't know how you would possibly do it if you didn't really care about the things. Otherwise, you, you're going through really hard and difficult situations for what? I mean, I I love writing and I really feel strongly about a lot of the 
places that I go to and the people that I meet and I want people to know about it and to do something and I feel like you know the people in those places can't get their stories out of themselves so I'm trying to tell their stories for them so it, it but I think it feels as though in the last few years I've seen more violence against women than I had ever seen in the rest of my career and I don't understand why that should have got worse and I don't sometimes I think is it I'm more aware of it but I as a woman I always spoke to the women in these places right from the very beginning and so I actually genuinely do believe that there is we're seeing more violence sexual violence against women in uh, different countries and I think it's largely because of the impunity you know it's so difficult for anyone to get justice for any of this so uh, most recently I was in the eastern DRC Democratic Republic of Congo which has some of the highest levels of um, rape on earth and it's just so prevalent and it, to the extent that I was talking to some of the um, people involved in um, the legal cases and they're saying to me that the judges that they're working with who are judging cases of sexual violence are themselves abusing <laughs> children and you just sometimes you don't even know where where to start in these places you, again not not just with um, the sexual violence stuff but again with these terrible events that you see how do you police that boundary between reporting and activism is that something that you're conscious of yeah well I mean you asked me before about the books the books are good because obviously one of the frustrations in writing articles is that you can't really explain in great detail things right I mean you have to be quite superficial often because you're just so restricted by space so books are great because then you can actually you know tell much more the real story and I think that's really important but with the Yazidis, I mean, going and seeing these young girls who had been kept as sex slaves and hearing their stories, I'll never forget a girl that I met who'd um, been taken, like a lot of them were taken to Germany to be um, treated afterwards. And to quite remote areas. Yeah, to very remote and in the middle of the forest. And so I went to talk to this, some of them, and one of them was a 16-year-old girl and she told me how she'd been taken by this ISIS judge who was very fat and would rape her night after night. And then she said to me, the worst night of my life was the night that he came back with a 10-year-old girl and raped her in the room next door to me as she cried for her mother all night. And, you know, sometimes you listen to these stories, you you don't really even know wh what to say next. You, you almost don't want to hear what, happened next because the stories are so difficult and you also you know you don't want to traumatize people by getting them to tell the stories again of what they've been through so that I think is a difficult issue but I felt with those girls really angry that nothing People knew, you know, the stories were being reported, but nothing was really being done to help them. The UK, for example, hasn't taken in a single Did that change your piece? 
no, I wrote about it. And actually, because I was angry, I did do things which I hadn't really done before. And I spoke, I've always, more recent years, have given talks and things. But I sort of spoke in parliamentary committees and and things to try and, and get that changed. Um, and in the end, actually, I mean, the book that I'm working on at the moment is about sexual violence in conflict, because it, it just seemed to me that this is a, a big subject that people are not really appreciating how bad the situation is. And we should be doing much more about it. And maybe as a, particularly as a woman reporter, I felt more responsibility to be telling these women's stories. Sure. We're going to have to draw this conclusion because we're up against our time limit. But Christina, thanks for being such a, a fascinating guest and covering such a broad uh, swathe of career and terrain and wishing you all the best with your projects going forward. Thank you very much. So, Simon, we're going to focus on you this time. Are we? Yes, because I always end up going on and on about my adventures. That is true. That are normally quite embarrassing. So I'd quite like to shift the spotlight. What have you been doing? I have been completing a draft of a long read for The Guardian, um, which I cannot uh, say what it's about after my editor berated me for mentioning it on Twitter. Oh. Um, he says someone else might swoop in oh, and really? steal the story. So have you deleted the tweet? The tweet has been deleted. Uh, I finally filed that. Um, How I rigorous is the editing process for a Guardian long read? It's pretty rigorous. How yeah. many drafts have you been through? I've just filed the first one, but okay. I think it'll probably go through two or three more after that. Uh, it's a little bit long. You nervous? No, I've done it before, so I, I know the editor there. Um, and then been laying the groundwork for a couple of other reporting trips, uh, both to the French Alps, so a piece for outside, concluding that, and a, another piece for 1843. So, um, yeah, lots of, lots of magazine work. What's a piece for 1843? I mean, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm wary now. I, I, I would, I would, I would usually have had no, no like contrition about discussing it. But after I was like told in 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 block capitals in the subject line of an email, delete your tweet. Oh my god. Yeah. So now I don't think I can say. Right. Best not then. Maybe not. Is that your first commission for the for 1843? It is my first commission for 1843. Yeah. It should be interesting. Um, what about you, Ellie? What about me? How was your holiday in Bali? Uh, yes. Again, I overshared about my drunken night in the larder on the last episode, didn't I? When yeah. I was so we've had complaints. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was a bit of a shit show actually. Um, I don't recommend anyone goes to Bali in only a week if you're trying to visit the Gili Islands because of the jet lag. No, no, no. Jet lag was fine. I don't get jet lag, famously. Um, no, you just can't. If there's a storm, the boats cancel to the Gili Islands. You just can't basically get there well we did but we had to it took the us giddy islands gilly islands okay um and each we had to get on a commercial ferry which ate up two days of the holiday just being on this ferry for like eight hours um on sounds the deck like with heart no of darkness shade. it was actually horrible i got chased by a dog and i'm actually really scared by dogs because i was mauled by one a few years ago okay and i got so triggered by it that i missed your flight no i lay in a crumpled heap shaking and crying and then missed my flight and then had to pay £600 for a new one at the airport. So, yeah, it was not a good holiday. I was not Ellie. rested. I read half a short story okay, um, by Ted Chiang. And that was, yeah, that was the most relaxation I had. And even that wasn't relaxing because it was dystopian sci-fi. 
that's, that's There's a moral cool. in this story somewhere, but who knows what it is. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikum. And me, Eleanor Halls. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our social media is by Zara Hankia. Our score is by Jess Danheiser. Uh, our graphic design is by James Edgar. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at Always Take Notes or Twitter, Take Notes Always. And we'd be grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do think about contributing to our crowdfunding campaign. That's patreon.com slash always take notes. Bye. Thank you.